0: Hi, and welcome to Tea and Strumpets, a Regency Romance Review. I'm your co-host Zoe, and I am here all by my lonesome here at the top of the show because... Kelsey and I have just had a really crazy month. And so she is moving and her internet wasn't set up yet. So that's why I'm here to introduce this episode on my own. But uh, that leads perfectly into a little bit about what you're going to be hearing today. So originally, after our Bridgerton episodes, we said that we were going to be doing a book review next. Uh, But As I kind of alluded to, real life just got in the way. We both had really crazy months catching up after our very busy month of February for the podcast. So we had this awesome interview with Rose in the bank. And we thought rather than wait an extra week, let's just give you guys this one now. And then next week, we'll be back with a book review. And I will be telling you what that book is if you didn't check in our show notes from the last episode at the end of this episode. So stay tuned for that. So anyhow, this conversation was really wonderful. We had so much fun with Rose Lerner, and I really can't wait for you guys to hear it. So just a quick little heads up, my audio is a little bit off, uh, I almost don't want to draw attention to it. Maybe you wouldn't notice. But I did have some loud gardeners outside my window. And also I got a new computer and some of my presets were changed. So I think that's why it doesn't sound like it always has. Um, I did my best to clean it up and hopefully it won't even be noticeable to you guys. But if you do notice, apologies. Hopefully we'll get everything ironed out as we move on through the year. Anyhow... Let's go ahead and get straight into our interview with Rose Lerner.
1: So today we're joined by fabulous author, Rose Lerner. Hi, Rose. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Rose. Hi. I'm so happy to be here. Yay.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Rose, I'm so excited. So I have been wanting to have you on our podcast. And then actually, um, Sarah Wendell from our from frolic reached out to us and mentioned that you had a book coming out. So I hustled up to get some reading done because I I really have been wanting to read your books because I you know, I'm a big Regency fan. I'm also Jewish. And so all the time, I'm like, where are the Jewish Regencies? And the the name that comes up is always Rose Lerner. <laughs> um, so I was so excited to get to read your work finally. It was like, okay, I've got to push that to the top of the pile. And I'm really excited to have this conversation and dive in today.
2: Yay. Um, and I do also like I, I I mean, I obviously love getting wrecked. So I'm not, but, um, if anyone's looking for other Jewish regencies, there are a few others. I mean, there can always be more. I would always love for there to be more. Uh, but like Nita Abrams is great. Um, you could you probably have to get hers used. I think the last time I checked, they were out of print. Um, yeah. And Corolla Dunn's Miss Jacobson's Journey is also fantastic. Um, and wow. if you if you do a search, you might be able to find a few others on, on Goodreads and stuff. Those are the ones that are springing to mind.
0: Yeah, it is. I, I've gotten the Nita... Abramson, you said, I can't remember, um, her, I've gotten that rec once before and completely forgot about it. I know it's on my Goodreads, like want to read category, you know, cause that's a g- good way to remember, you know, to not forget books. Um, but yeah, it is, it is sad. You know, we have this Regency romance podcast and Kelsey and I love Regency. Like, obviously that's why we do this, but it is very, you know, straight white, cis gendered, um, for the most part, but I feel like we've been seeing a lot more diversity coming out in the genre in all sorts of ways. And so that's really exciting. And, and also something that like we love to to promote and to read because it's interesting.
2: Yeah, I'm so excited about it too. You know, I, I look back to when I first started, it was like before the big ebook boom and before the self publishing boom. And um, I don't know if the I don't know the books that I've put out um, could have or would have been published, um, you know, when I first started. Um, And it's very exciting. I mean, again, you know, we still have a long way to go, but it's really exciting to see the progress that we're making.
1: Absolutely. So thank you for all those wonderful recommendations. And I know Zoe's like chomping at the bit to go read them. Um, But we have a question for you, which is, do you have a favorite romance novel?
2: So I really hate favorite questions because oh, me too. <laughs> I feel like it's, like, it's like when you're a kid, right? And it's like, which is your favorite stuffed animal? And it's like, even if you have one, you don't want to make the other ones feel bad, you know? So um, <laughs> I thought about this ahead of time, um, but I really like, I narrowed it down to like four and I feel like they're all my favorite in like different ways. <laughs>
1: That's fine. That worked. Um,
2: so... Of books that I've read recently, like if I had to reread a book like Tomorrow, um, it would probably be Alyssa Cole's Prince on Paper. I just love that book so much. I've read it. Um, I was lucky enough to read a, an early draft and and give her some feedback on it. So, um, and then I got to read it again when it came out, and then I read it again like immediately and started like a Twitter DM group to like talk about my feelings because it was like too many feelings for Main <laughs> Twitter. <laughs> so uh really love that book um it's like a um i'm trying to remember. i don't think it's like a, a marriage of be. i think it's maybe like a fake engagement um but th- like sh- he's like a bad boy prince and i like do not remember i feel like it's for pr for some reason like his family needs pr and this picture of them gets getting like good press and so they decide to let but like it's very cute Um, she's, uh, the cousin from, uh, A Princess in Theory, um, and, uh, there, it's just, like, a really sweet, like, bad boy who's, like, secretly kind of a try-hard sweetheart, you know, (laughs) which is, like, my favorite flavor. Um, if you ask me what romance was sort of the most formative for me as, like, a young romance reader... I, and that I would still can still reread and enjoy it. I would have to say, Georgia Hay the Black Moth. I, it's like I'm a little bit embarrassed about how much I love that book, but I just really love that. Book. <laughs> um, Tracy Devil Bellmanoir is like my heart forever with his little goth black and silver nonsense. <laughs> like I just um, Loretta Chase's Lord of Scoundrels is like uh, so fantastic.
0: Mm-hmm, like yep. yep
2: up there for me too (laughs) yeah like how many times have I read that book I don't even know like so many so um I I, like don't have a copy right now because I did the con Marie method and um I like I I just have it has not come out with a cover that is like the cover that I want to have on my shelf Mm. for always I feel like and I'm like I feel like if I wait long enough it will be reissued and like eventually it will be like the one that I want to like pet every day um (laughs) But I mean, I've read it a million times and I, I think I've owned like two or three different like cheap paperback editions because I keep wanting to read it again. And then, yeah. Awesome.
0: I totally know that that is the meanest question to ask. Like, it's a mean, it's a mean question to be like, what's your favorite romance? But at the same time, I feel like the answers we get every time are so interesting because I don't, I'm not like, we're not actually saying pick one romance, but like we get such a variation and usually a good conversation. So that's why I I, I like to continue to ask it because yeah, it's, it's a, it's a terrible exercise. And even just randomly, I'll be thinking about it myself. Like, well, what are my top three? And I'm like, I just can't, I don't, today
1: they are these, and
0: tomorrow they're that.
1: I would be a deer in headlights. (laughs) I would be a full deer in headlights. (laughs) At least this question I've been asked it enough that
2: I kind of can come up with an answer at least, mm-hmm. you know, like something to say, right? Yeah. I'm not going to say it's the authoritative answer, but it's like I have an answer. If I'm just sort of randomly going about my day and someone's like, what's your favorite movie? I'm like, I don't know. Do I have to think of every movie I've ever seen and rank them now? <laughs> like, why would you hurt me this <laughs> <way>? <laughs>
1: Uh Well, now that we know a little bit more about your favorite romances let's know a little bit more about your history so i mean we know your bio says you've been reading romance since you were youngin but what made you want to pick them up and what sparked the interest for you
2: well you know i uh i apologize if anybody is like listening to several podcasts because i feel like i've told the story like i keep telling the story it's i mean i love the story i don't get tired of it but like i apologize if anybody else is tired of it but um (laughs) when I was like 13, my middle school had this program. Um, it was called the mentorship program and, and you told them what you wanted to do when you grew up and they found somebody in that field to mentor you. Cool. Um, and so I guess I told them that I wanted to be a writer because they paired me with a local writer who was an absolutely lovely woman. And periodically I check to see if her novel has been published. Um, I should look again cause it's been a few years. Um, because I thought she was a fantastic writer, but um, at the time uh, self-publishing wasn't a thing and, and she hadn't been able to find a publisher for it. Anyway, she was fantastic. She also loaned me Judith Merkel Riley's The Oracle Glass, which like changed my life. That was so good. Um, but uh, she told me that she knew somebody who made a living writing um, or like who wrote full time, you know, and um, that maybe she could introduce me. And it was Carola Dunn. Uh, who wrote traditional Regencies. Um, wow. Um, and she was local. And so I, and she said she writes Regency romance. And I was like, okay, I didn't know what that was, but like mm-hmm. I nodded, like I knew what was going on because I was that kind of child. And um, <laughs> then I got off the phone and I said to hey, mom, what's Regency romance? And she just like busted out laughing because she read them when she was, she hadn't read them in a, in a long time, but when she was younger, um, she had read them like a lot, you know, and then, mm-hmm. uh, I, so I went to the library and I checked out this woman's books and like, it was all over for me from there. Like I love them. And then me and my mom both, like my mom started reading them again. And, um, yeah, the rest is history. (laughs) So
1: that's great. I love moms. My story also includes my good friend's mom because she was always reading books that like when she was laughing at scenes and stuff like that. So eventually my friend was like, what are you reading? And so she just gave her the book. And then she was like, "Oh, Kelsey needs to read this." And then, boom.
0: <laughs> and like you said, with listeners hearing the same thing, Kelsey and I have told our story many times. But my my romance story begins with Kelsey, so
2: <laughs>
1: she's
0: the one who
2: gave me the books. Yeah. That's so heartwarming. Oh my. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> yeah, my uh, I made a romance friend in in middle school because I saw her reading one uh, in class, like at the next desk over Mm -hmm. um and we kind of knew each other like we were kind of friends but didn't know each other super well and like we bonded and we used to go to the bookstore there was like a bookstore like across town that was just like a used paperback bookstore Mm -hmm. and it was like half off the you know it would sell you the book for 50 percent of the list price oh yeah and they had like a whole wall of traditional regencies and we would just spend like three hours reading back cover copy and making like that little pile (sighs) That's
0: very bold it seems to me for a, a 13-year-old girl to be reading a romance in class like well, I mean it wasn't like in the middle of class while the teacher was talking but. No 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 I mean the more like you know because of the stigma of it and because kids at that age are such assholes like and pick on each other all the time I don't know maybe I just went to a terrible school I was picked on for everything so I would have been mortified to like bring a book because I was a fantasy reader and I thought everybody would think I was a nerd. So I was like mortified to bring anything, but I guess, you know, my you own know I
2: know a lot of people have had that experience and I'm not saying that they were wrong, you know, but I, I was certainly embarrassed by a lot of things and I got picked on for a lot of things when I was younger, but, um, I don't really, re- I cannot think of a time when anybody singled out what I was reading as something to pick on me about. Like that must've just not been I I don't know. I don't feel like people were looking at that in middle
0: school. I, I hope that's a trend that, you know, is, or I hope that is a trend with kids, especially now today, because like books are, are fabulous and everybody should just read, you
1: know. Yeah, I mean, I would love for it to be a trend. I just don't know how much like my middle
2: school would be a sign of
1: whether it's a trend or not. I was just known as the reading girl. So that <laughs> was just my thing. You know, that actually reminded me though, I had forgotten, and
0: I didn't read romance till significantly later in life when Kelsey and I met. So I was in my twenties, but, um, in middle school, I had a friend and the two of us started writing a book together. And I completely forgot about this until right now. And it was like <laughs> a fantasy romance. I mean, and we would pass it back and forth the pages to like each work on it. And yeah. What a, Do you what a remember project. the plot? Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, Zoe, you need to go find this. So I remember the pink gel pen that we used to <laughs> write it with because the pen went with the pages, you know, Yes, but I I don't remember, I don't remember the plot. Um, maybe the name will come to me, you know, the main character's name while we're talking. But anyhow, we should get into not my, my works, but <laughs>
1: Rose's works. Yeah. <laughs> Man, Zoe, I really need you to go find this somewhere.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm very intrigued. I have it, I think, as a, um, a goal on my Patreon that if I get to a certain number of patrons that I'll post my first book that's under my bed that I wrote <laughs> when I was 17. Um, Love it. I sort of regret promising that. <laughs> but... <laughs> so everyone,
1: uh, head on over to Rose's Patreon. Oh, yeah, <laughs> there you go. Okay, but... As much as we're interested in your first book at 17, we are here to talk (laughs) about your most recent book, which is The Wife in the Attic, and it is based around Jane Eyre, if I'm not mistaken.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a gothic, uh, it's a gothic governess story where um, the governess is sort of like, you know, vibing with her boss, um, but starts to suspect that maybe he has a Terrible secret. It's not a secret in my book that he has a wife, but his wife is supposedly sick and can't leave her room. Um, and the heroine becomes suspicious of that story.
1: Mm. So, as you're describing it, everything is gothic, and you know we think of a lot of Regency romance as very like light and fluffy. However, our original romances, such as Jane Eyre, or you know the Brontes, especially, they wrote very gothic novels, very like. Deep tortured souls and you know, secrets, which is great because we like a deep tortured hero. So, what made you think more along the lines of gothic? What inspired you about the Bronte's and made you want to put your own twist on a story of theirs?
2: Well, for one thing, like Jane Eyre is actually set during the Regency, if you look carefully. Mm. Um, <laughs> Yeah, there's a, there's some, the way that like fashion is described and stuff, there's some time references and it also, uh, she specifically talks about getting a copy of Sir Walter Scott's Marmion when it comes out. So, um, yeah. So I think, I mean, certainly there is like the lighter Regencies are a trend and there's like very much that tradition from like sort of the Jane Austen side of things. Mm -hmm. But I do feel like there's like been like the darker, like before, um, Back in the day, that <laughs> dawn of time in the '90s, there was like the traditional regencies that were sort of the category regencies that were like lighter comedy of manners, like didn't have like sex in them typically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was what tended to be called Regency historicals, which were like the darker, like um, Joan Wolfe and like those um, authors, and those tended to be like the darker ones. And I mm-hmm. always loved those as well. Um, like, Joan Wolfe's The Gamble is so good. Um, or, like, Amanda Quick. Um, well, that's also, like, a little bit on the lighter side. And then the gothics... I mean, obviously, a lot of the gothics are set in, like, the Victorian era, mm-hmm. I think. But But there was, like, also a big... Sorry, I don't have like a very well thought out answer to this question. I guess I'm just kind of That means I've asked you a new question. It's great. um, (laughs) There there was like, like gothics were popular during the Regency. Like there was a huge, I mean, maybe a little before the Regency was like the huge gothic swell, like in like the 1790s. Um, I think in reaction to the French Revolution, kind of like gothics tend to become popular when there's sort of a lot of like fear and dread and like, also maybe like paranoia and mm-hmm. like backlash and like 10, like when there's like a lot of like tension in yeah. like the atmosphere. So like the 1790s, like with the French revolution um, and then like um, the, the 19, there's like a little bulge in the 1930s. And then there's like the huge trend in like the sixties and seventies of gothics. Um, and so I think like there's, and you do see now like even though like maybe specifically regency gothics aren't like as much of a specific thing but like you are, I feel like you are seeing like a an increase in sort of domestic thrillers which like like I don't know what genre what genre would you call like uh Victoria Helen Stone's like Jane Doe like suspense like I, but like that type of like that type of thing like they just now they're doing all these reboots or um, like not reboots. They're doing like a bunch of adaptations of like Daphne du Maurier. We're seeing like, um, just, like movies, like get out that are kind of like, mm-hmm. I like, I would call that a Gothic, like as well, you know, as with the other genres that it is, because it's like all centered around something that is, it's like he, you know, a stranger comes to a house that seems like, whole you know like like a nice family whatever and then something is terribly wrong Mm -hmm. in that there's like a secret in that house right yeah um but and he has to figure out like who he can trust and like can he trust the person that he loves and like Mm -hmm. right what is going on with this family and um so i think that kind of story you're seeing that people are being drawn to that because of the intense dread and trauma that we're all experiencing in our world, you know? And so I think, I mean, the reason that I wrote it as a Regency is because that's the time period that I know, you know, that I write in. And so, um, if I had decided to write it as a Victorian, I would have had to do like a ton more research. Mm-hmm. But, um, I also, uh, part of my inspiration for it was, um, Castle Rackrent by, uh, Maria Edgeworth, which is another, maybe like slightly before the regency but like a um turn of that the night oh my gosh is it the turn of the 19th century when it's like 1799 1801 or is that the turn of the 18- sure? <laughs> no, not- but anyway like around that time period um there she wrote this book Castle Rackrent and it has a story in it also about a a man um keeping his wife imprisoned and so um i think like there's like a certain kind of also um gothics kind of feed on isolation Mm -hmm. like physical isolation yeah um there's a line in uh in a sherlock holmes story i want to say it's the copper beaches where they're going um they're going to see their client who's a governess at a remote country estate and watson is looking out the train window and he's thinking like how pretty the houses are. And Holmes looks out the window and he thinks, like, I can never see country dwellings like this without thinking of the terrible crimes that could happen here without anybody knowing. And Watson is like, oh my God, Holmes, like you're so cynical, or whatever. And Holmes is like, if our client lived in town, I wouldn't be afraid for her. But the five miles of open country mm-hmm. is what makes a difference because she can't get away, right? Like yeah. she cannot leave safely. If she tries to run away and they have a horse. It's done. all over. Yeah. Right. Like my ex used to say, like, the next trend of Gothics is going to be space gothics. Right. Like because imagine you're in a space station, right? Mm-hmm. With somebody and something is wrong and you don't know what it is. It's like because that physical isolation is really key. And in England, you do, I think, see um, you know, as you get into the Victorian era, there is you can not that you can't still do it. Obviously, many people have done it very successfully, but like as transportation becomes uh you know the public transportation and like mass transit and the railroads become more and as the roads become standardized and improved mm-hmm. like and as telephones are invented and the telegraph is invented right like and as the post becomes quicker like those kind like steam ships right like those kinds of fast communication and fast travel um all uh, make the gothic a little more difficult. It's like how sometimes now you'll see people want to tell like horror stories and they'll set it before cell phones. Yeah. Because they don't have to worry about explaining why the person couldn't call for help, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, I think in some ways like a goth, like the Regency is actually like a really great fit for a gothic because it's right on the cusp of when um, all of these like decreases in, in isolation and secrecy start to come in
3: um, yeah. you
2: also see like more i mean not that i mean you know uh, defund the police but um <sighs> there wasn't a lot of like law enforcement infrastructure in england during the regency mm-hmm. um it was there wasn't like the jurisdiction was not um like it, i mentioned in the book like if a man was like b- abusing his wife like the constable was not allowed to come in unless she cried murder like that's the expression the origin of that expression like cry murder because that's like probable cause for the police to forcibly enter a home
1: mm.
0: so I, I have a question something that you just said really sparked this in me this is something i was gonna you know talk about later, but this book is coming out in the time of COVID, right? And you mentioned um that, you know, gothics kind of revolve around this isolation. And I don't know when you started writing this book or you had this idea, but I have found that, and I think a lot of people have found that creativity has been a little bit different, if not harder, this year. Um, and like a lot of creative processes are kind of blocked with all of this, the changes in our lives. Now, did you find the same thing for you or was kind of this gothic inspiration helpful during a time of
2: isolation? That's a really interesting question. And I was just thinking about this while I was listening to the audiobook, um, because I actually wrote most of the book before lockdown. Mm-hmm. So You mean books take a long time to write? <laughs> well, this book took even longer than usual to write because like I got a divorce in the middle and I moved and I like got two new jobs and I Like, so, you know, it just, um, this one was kind of like, I'm a slow writer anyway, but this one definitely dragged out much longer than I was expecting when I started writing it. But I started writing it in like 2017 Wow. So I would say more of an influence for me was the political atmosphere in the 2016 election. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say the, that
0: many of us felt very isolated after that. <laughs>
2: yeah, and like the rise of fascism and whatnot. So yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was definitely something that was a big influence for me. Um, I think that some things that maybe felt really far away, you know, and I feel like for, for me, for example, like I, you know, my great grandparents came to this country um, and their family that stayed behind was murdered uh, in the Holocaust. So, um, you know, it doesn't, I don't think, feel as far away to me as it does to people who don't have family connections to it. But at the same time, I think it, it felt more distant before the last five years than it does now. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, one thing like my heroine in the book um spoiler mild spoiler but her she has family that are spanish inquisition survivors and um i think that for a lot of us the spanish inquisition like for me i know like i'm not sephardic i'm ashkenazi and the, the spanish inquisition to me feels far away but it really isn't you know mm-hmm. um it really is not it's like uh, there were burnings that were going on through the end of the 18th century. I mean, less in the second half, but, um, so for some, uh, you know, a, a Sephardic Jewish person in the Regency, that was fairly recent history for them. Um, and so I think like the ways that, like, I think something that I really wanted to explore was like the ways that the past can feel both very distant and very, and very lost and very unrecoverable, but also very present with us. Um, You know, like, um, my mother died when I was 23. And that was a long time ago for me now. right? That was like, gosh, that was like 15 years ago, almost. But I and, and at the same time, like, I still think about her all the time. And still, you know, like, she's still like, I still dream about her, like, she's still a very strong presence in my life, but also something that is like, lost. To me, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think the ways like there's this quote that I think of all the time in um, The Body Keeps the Score, which is a book about trauma, like a nonfiction book about trauma. Um, And it talks about how the um, for a trauma survivor, like the the reality of the relatively stable present, (laughs) the reality of the relatively stable present is coexistent with the reality of the ruinous past. And that you can't just be like, well, you're safe now because the past is still present, right? And so I think yeah. that. Sorry, I've it really far afield but like that is the thing that I thought about a lot. The COVID stuff, I think, when I was listening to it again, um, I was surprised by how many things in it now feel timely in a way that I w- didn't intend when I wrote them, because it is very much about being stuck at home, mm-hmm. about not being able to go out, about like, growing unaccustomed to being around other people yeah. um, about solitary confinement. I mean, obviously, look, having to stay at home because I don't want to make people sick is not the same as solitary confinement where it's, like, not within your control, right? But um, at the same time, like, that is something that I explored, it, both because there's this woman locked in her room and because solitary confinement was part of the Spanish Inquisition. Um, and so, like, there are definitely things that just, like, resonated with me even like differently than when I wrote them because I now have this experience of like not going out and going anywhere or talking to anyone in person for a year you know mm. um I definitely like have been less creative this last year but I had mostly finished the book before that really set in it's funny I am also a freelance editor and I have a lot of clients who like were really productive for the first part so I had like a ton of work at the end of last year mm-hmm of people that had like finished books. And now it's like really slowing down. I think like people kind of were able, like at first people were like, Oh my gosh, like I have all this extra time. Like there was like, at first people thought we're saying like, Oh my God, there's no way I can write. Then I think there was this like burst of creative, like focus, creativity and like processing. And now I think we're all just like, totally (laughs) like burned out and just like, uh now what yeah. I guess I have to keep going yeah yeah the end is in
0: sight but not really so now you just feel like it's dragging and you're kind of like well when and yeah no it's it's a very weird feeling but I think it's really interesting because I think that a lot of us um I think there's probably uh, two camps of people people who really enjoy um kind of watching things about covid and then people who don't enjoy that at all right like for me watching gray's anatomy with them trying to do a season about covid this year i was like yeah no i'm out i do not want to see the characters go through covid while we're still going through covid
2: That is Gray's just- anatomy still on the air oh no, yeah it is can you believe <laughs> that i
0: know it's 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 cra- it's crazy to me that it's still on the air it's it's even crazier to me that i will start watching it each season because it's <laughs> it's just not very good anymore. But then they were like, we're gonna just make it all about COVID. And, you know, spoiler alert here, we're gonna make the main character get COVID. And I'm like, this is not like, it was too traumatic for me, but there's also something healing in kind of like looking at your current situation and processing it. And I think that actually, you know, having, you know, this kind of fantastical you know, romantic, gothic retelling that that does feature isolation might actually be really like something that a lot of people can connect to right now, you know, in a a very different way than than we could before, just like you said, listening to it again, how things kind of resonated with you differently. So that's, that's a really exciting um, prospect.
2: Thank you. Yeah, I agree. I think for me, I mean some people are probably more healthy than I am, but I think for me, I really benefit from a little bit of sort of like like a, like a veil of distance, right? Like a like a loose yeah. like illusion of distance for me to be able to really connect to my feelings. Like I am much better at processing my my feelings like about say a relationship by writing a romance or like Writing a ship manifesto, or writing fan fiction, or something that I, or listening to a song and thinking about how it relates to like my favorite ship, than I am to thinking about how it relates to me directly. Um, and so I think I like I I do better when there's like I can I can commit to it more when it feels less personal. And I think that is what catharsis kind of is, right? It's like mm-hmm. um, what is the? Or it's like. I'm trying to remember what how Aristotle described it. It's like a purgation of the passions by the – well, whatever. But the mm-hmm. point is that it's like you see, right, like you see like this intense emotion acted on stage and you're able to experience it in a way that feels safe mm-hmm. and contained. And you, so you can like let go and really like feel those like tragic emotions and really go through the whole cycle with them. Whereas if you're actually thinking about whatever it is in your own life, that may be – created those feelings or feeds on those feelings, um, they can feel more scary, more dangerous. They can linger in different ways or like get their hooks in you in different ways. Whereas like, I think when it's imaginary in some, on some level, it's easier to move through them. Definitely. So, I was curious, as
0: I've been reading your one of your other books, True Pretenses, which is the one that I've gotten like a lot of recommendations for, um, you know, as far as a Jewish book, and that that was written a few years ago now. So, um, you know, it's, it's not your newest release, like the one we're talking about. But what made you choose an interfaith couple? Because that to me seems even trickier than writing a couple of the same faith. And like, what was that like and what inspired you to want to have those themes throughout your book and tackle that yourself?
2: Well, I mean, I guess um, my parents, my parents, I'm half Jewish. um, I'm Jewish and half Jewish, but my my parents are an interfaith relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's something that's very familiar to me and that um, I find interesting, I guess. Um, So... And I I mean, I think with True Pretenses, I'm trying to remember if I wrote True Pretenses first or All or Nothing first. I think I wrote True Pretenses first, but I specifically was inspired to write it because of a movie that I saw, uh, Brothers Bloom, uh, which is like a heist film. Oh, it's really fun. Yeah. Yeah, I I have it. it It's really fun. I I hate the ending. I hate the ending. (laughs) The ending upset me deeply. And I was like, I'm going to fix this. And then as I was thinking about it, I was like, you know, he, like, this doesn't even make sense because he sets his brother up with this girl who, like, is just, like, him, and she she's the right girl for him. Like, why would he and his the brother even fall in love? And then I was, like, romance concept. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but, so I had these two characters um who are Jewish in the movie, and so I felt that, I... I, I this is, like, I feel like so – like, not Promised Land, which I specifically wanted to write a Jewish couple from the beginning, but, like, several of my – like, my other two Jewish books, True Pretenses and All or Nothing, neither did I set out necessarily to write a Jewish character, but that it was, like, the character was already Jewish for some reason, and I would have had to change them from being Jewish, and I was, like, not willing. So mm-hmm. – um, I, so then, I was committed to them being Jewish, but then I—it was a tie. You know, it was the second book in the series, so the other character needed to be somebody that was already in lively Saint Leviston, where there were not. Luckily, I realized that – was because in the in the first book in the series, Sweet Disorder, there's a bit where she goes to this Tory dinner, and all the people there are being like gross and conservative, and um, <laughs> they're talking about how they don't think the Catholics should have the vote, and somebody says if the Catholics get the vote, it's going to be the Jews next. And she says, well, you know, I, I think the Jews should maybe have the vote. And they're like, have you ever even met a Jew? And in the original draft, she said, no, but fortunately I realized before I got that, like, actually there would have been like Jewish peddlers and and stuff that Mm -hmm. would have, you know, like she would have met Jews before, but, and I had kind of figured out that the second book was going to have this Jewish character anyway. So luckily I got, I managed to change that before the first book came out, but, um, But so I I needed to be so there weren't any Jews that like live in this town. So it was kind of I was kind of um, and I, you know, I wanted it to be like, I really like writing cross class stories. Mm -hmm. So if it was going to be an heiress in this little village, like the odds are good that she would be Christian. Um, And certainly I didn't have any Jewish characters already. So um, in this town, uh, if I wanted to do a Jewish heiress, I would have had to go to London. And I think also the story wouldn't have worked as well with like another character that was Jewish, because I think like he wouldn't have been able, like mm-hmm. they requires the other, like he has a con, like he wouldn't try to do a con on a Jewish lady pretending, right? Because she would immediately figure out that he was Jewish. Like mm-hmm. his <laughs> whole thing is that he, and also he wouldn't, you know, he avoids big towns. He avoids places with big Jewish populations because he's passing because he's one, he's on the run from his like, you know, um criminal, like gang that he was in in london uh that he ran away from and also uh he doesn't want anybody to like beat him up and also (laughs) he's doing cons where he pretends to be like one of the boys right Mm -hmm. he's like pretends that he's like an english gentleman and then he does cons on rich english people but he relies on the fact that they probably can't visually identify a jewish person right
1: yeah Um, (laughs) so
2: yeah (laughs) So for that one, there were, it just kind of made sense for the story. Um, Let's see all or nothing. I also also interfaith. And I think, again, it was just like, I wasn't like, I already kind of had the plot and I wasn't, um, you know, originally, like I didn't write it around her being Jewish, but also, I mean, again, I just, I know that some people feel that um, if both the characters are Jewish, that's like a more Jewish story or that's like a more, like progressive story. And I, or they just are really starved for that because I admit there isn't as much of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, and I understand that, you know, like I understand that, that some Jewish people um, will choose to not read my interfaith books, but as a child of an interfaith couple myself and somebody that has like had, you know, I, I'm Jewish and I love the Jewish community. And I, I'm, you know, I, I have a synagogue and everything. And like, I have many, wonderful like Jewish friends you know but um i you know there was definitely uh tension in my family around that marriage as a kid um i definitely have sometimes you know dealt with not feeling welcome in, in Jewish spaces and on also and i i feel like i never want to focus on that because it's like I don't want to, you know, like, it's not like I feel more welcome in Christian spaces. I don't, you know, Mm -hmm. like my Christian, my dad's Christian family was much worse. Right. But like, (laughs) I cared more about being part of my mom's Jewish family. And so those wounds like stay more fresh because I um, was more hurt by them. So. I, I think like it's something and I think it's great romantic conflict, <laughs> frankly, I mean, I, I also write cross class, I write class cultural, like I write, so I really love the tension and the, um, the conflict that comes from having different backgrounds and having to negotiate like different priorities and having to learn to like, not take things personally, and then like, explain why you do take other things personally and like like, i just really love that kind of negotiation in a relationship and so um yeah
0: i found it super interesting you know as i'm reading along because obviously like you know at the beginning you're like okay well they they don't share the same you know religion so that is going to be a conflict how are they going to get through that but i think you you're right like it's such a great romance you know trope right to for to for that to be the conflict in or part of the conflict in in some ways um and I I mean conflict as in just more like the the hurdle that the two of them have to you know work together to get past not that there's an actual like conflict yeah yeah right. but um so so yeah I, I I think it's really interesting and cool I just felt like as I was reading it I was like oh my gosh this is like this is an added layer of something that you know as an author you have to to overcome not overcome but but write your way through and i thought i just thought it was a really interesting choice and very very cool but we've read two novellas that feature jewish characters um that are both hanukkah novellas um uh, which again like um it just feels like you know during during the the holiday season you know we wanted to to add in some some representation there but you know i think we've read both of the hanukkah novellas regency novellas that exist and <laughs> uh, one features an interfaith couple, uh, that we read and one featured, um, a Jewish couple. Um, but I don't believe it was written by a Jewish person. So that was a little bit interesting when, when we kind of realized that. And then, you know, our discussion centered a little bit more around, okay, well, if we're looking at this through somebody else's eyes, then what does that really make this scene, you know, mean? Mm -hmm. So, so it's just been, it's been interesting. And, and like you said, there aren't that that many. You've given us some some more recommendations, which is awesome.
2: I hope that didn't come off as like criticism for you for not knowing or anything. I just feel like I never want to be the person that is like I'm so special because I'm the only one. Do you know what I mean? Like I always want to give credit to the people, that the ancestors. Uh, no, but, you. It yeah. definitely did not okay. feel like that. No, <laughs> not even a little bit. <laughs> um,
0: but speaking yeah.
2: of the American Revolution, <laughs> yes,
0: you have you have written some things about the American Revolution.
2: Yeah. Uh me, Courtney Milan and Alyssa Cole had an anthology called Hamilton's Battalion um that came out a few years ago. Um that uh I'm I'm very proud of. I'm very proud of how that turned out.
1: Um it's a really great book. I read it. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, Kelsey's
0: recommended it on a couple of other podcasts I have, too.
1: Um Especially like Promised Land, your contribution to it. I thoroughly enjoyed reading it because it was very much like I loved the heroine and the fact that she basically was like, yeah, I just told my husband I was dead, basically, so I could fight in the revolution. Um, Pretty ballsy. Love it. But also just like the communication between them and I just I really like that, although for me, too, like I'm not Jewish and um, but I just loved your inclusion of like so much Jewish tradition and history in it. And I was like, this is fascinating. I don't know anything about this.
2: I had such a good time researching that book. And, like, I mean, haven't you always wanted a Simchas romance? I mean, I just, like, it just, that just turned out with the timing. I mean, I looked at the calendar of when the Siege of Yorktown was. and Mm -hmm. It was during Sicus and and Simchas So, you know, Um, but, uh, yeah, I, you know, I had been, like, I had become obsessed with the musical Hamilton, Mm -hmm. uh, like so many people. (laughs) And all I was doing was listening to Hamilton on repeat and then reading nonfiction about the American Revolution, which I, and like early, um, you know, U.S., which I had never been particularly interested in before. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, and I was kind of feeling like I really have to stop this because I need to write my next book, you mm-hmm, know, and I need mm-hmm. to start researching my next book instead of just reading about Alexander Hamilton and adjacent topics. Um, and then Courtney and Alyssa were like, so we're thinking about doing like a, a Hamilton Titan. I thought she was like, oh, thank God, I don't have to stop. So- <laughs> Um, but we really wanted to do, you know, because there were a lot, I think, of books and romances and stuff that kind of came out of that, that were just about, like, Alexander Hamilton, Mm -hmm. uh, as like a person. Um, and we felt like what was so meaningful and so appealing about the show was the diversity and the, you know, including people of color, and that there were people of color in the American Revolution doing stuff, you know, and Mm so, um, we really wanted to have something that kind of uh brought like that excitement and didn't like lose that to refocus and recenter whiteness and like um so uh and that was part of why I was like i have to do two, i have to do two Jewish characters for this mm-hmm. um so uh i mean I didn't have to but i i decided i felt i don't know i felt a i felt that it was important to me for some reason <laughs> so um and then uh you know, Courtney and Alyssa both did uh, queer um, queer stories. With mm-hmm. Courtney being in, um, interracial, and then Alyssa being two black women, and I like I'm just so proud of how that anthology came out. Like I. Um, And, you know, what's really interesting is how, even at the time, like, at the time, like, if you look at at politics after the American Revolution, like, so much of it, and I talk about this in the book, like, so much of it is based around creating legitimacy, political legitimacy and political authority based on your actions during the Revolution. Mm -hmm. So, like... You see, like, George Washington obviously being the most obvious example, right? Like, he becomes the first president because he was the head of the army during the revolution. Mm -hmm. Um, But you see, like, there's also, um, like, English people and, like, people from Europe who would come to America were, like, really like weirded out by how guys who had been in the revolution would like still go by their army titles socially, like years later when they weren't in the army anymore. And like everyone went by Colonel or whatever. And they were just like, this is so odd. Like you guys aren't in the army, but like, it was just this very much this, um, that's part of where the whole culture, like the, the centrality of dueling to early American politics, I think very much comes out of that also where it's like this, need to legitimate your political position by a willingness to like put your life on the line for it Mm -hmm. right um and so you see that and then you still see it today where we're fighting over who was in the revolution as if that like Garrett you know that justifies your place in modern politics right that like Mm -hmm. hey like we were there too and you also see even just starting Early on, the need to exclude various people—you know—when you see the organizations like Daughters of the American Revolution and the like, I'm pretty sure those were segregated originally. I mean, I I haven't researched this in a while, and I could be off um, specifically, but like, right? It's like you see organizations and lobbies and and pol- like organizations that are for people who were in the revolution that exclude certain groups and that exclude certain groups from the narrative, mm-hmm. um, and so. Um, you know there's been like even if you look at like american jewish history like um like historians like you consistently see people who are like here's a list of all the jews that were in the revolution right is this way to like legitimate our present political position and you see the same thing with hamilton where it's like um creating this legitimacy through reclaiming this original history that's such a founding myth
3: mm-hmm. and
2: narrative for our country and so um I guess we were participating in that ancient sport. I don't know. But, um, and I, I talk about it in the book with the the window thing, right? Like there's the, the the drama at the synagogue about the window and like who took the window out of the, um, oh. the there was like a fight over the window The window would be open or closed during Yom Kippur services. Mm-hmm. And uh, everyone is still mad about it like years later. And she's like, after the revolution, like it's going to be like that where everyone is still going to be holding grudges. And so like, we have to make sure that like, you know, we have a place at that table Mm -hmm. and so, yeah, yeah. Well,
0: before we get towards our wrap up today, I wanted to talk a little bit more about your latest release Um, and you brought with you a audio clip, which uh, sorry listeners, I have gardeners outside my window right now. So if you all can hear that, um, if I haven't gotten it edited out, I don't know why they're so close.
3: Uh, I can't hear, I
0: don't know what that means, but. Okay, excellent. So perhaps I'll even get to cut that, but it's very loud. Like, but uh, you've brought an audio clip with you today and uh, we're going to play that for our listeners. And Kelsey and I have listened to it already, Mm -hmm. but you said that this was a particularly interesting clip. We'll play it right now and then we'll come back and discuss it.
3: Master's orders, ma'am. All doors are locked at night to keep out thieves. May I keep the key? I pressed, heedless of her lamp stoking my hectic flesh and pitilessly illuminating my muddy shift and shapeless chest. I'm afraid not, ma'am, I'm sorry. Master's orders. But you're quite safe. We've never had a fire in all my years here. Golden Grove has good stone walls. Not like the flimsy wooden buildings you're used to in town. I could not argue any more. Very well, I said with feigned cheerfulness. Good night. I shut the door very slowly. The lock turned loudly. Mrs. Cross's footsteps retreated. I flew to the room's other door to try the handle. Locked. My shaking fingers could not make sense of the curtain's tasseled pulls. God, I hated my weakness. Seizing the curtain itself, I dragged it back to examine the window. There was no window. The smooth, panelled walls extended behind the curtain. White, blank, and impenetrable.
0: All right. So we've, uh, we've returned to our discussion now. Um, Rose, why don't you tell us a little bit about that clip and, uh, why you chose it for us?
2: Well, I really like, um, wanted to get like those good Gothic vibes. Yes. Um, Oh, I felt that. (laughs) Don't you worry. (laughs) (laughs) And I also am like obsessed with the voice that the narrator does for the housekeeper. Mm -hmm. I love it so much. Um, and I, feel like like something that i really love about the narrator is that i feel like um something that i value very much as a storyteller is that i'm um i don't know fair is the right word but that i i let each character like kind of have their own stuff going on you know that i'm never i don't reduce them to how they relate to the main character um and i let them be like a full like dostoevsky there's a famous dostoevsky scholar bakhtin who called um this uh oh my gosh, what is the word in English? And it's polyphonia, but it might be polyphony, but it's like a multi voices, right? Where it's like each voice is a complete voice within the whole. And so um, I think like I never wanted any of the characters to seem like caricatures, even if I didn't necessarily like that. And so I was really pleased. Like I I, um, told my narrator like, oh my gosh, like I love this voice that you did for Mrs. Cross. Uh, She sounds like a nightmare person. (laughs) she was like i have a soft spot for mrs cross because like i just remember being like a tired wardrobe mistress having to help people with their stays (sighs) and i like really like i mean and, and you know i don't i think that she like that really comes through right like there's like a genuine like personhood to mrs cross i don't dislike her because she's like you know, rude or like gives bad customer service. I just like her because she's kind of like a, a micromanager and anti-Semite. But like, <laughs> you know, like, um, but I really appreciated like the the thought that um, and the the compassion and the like generosity that she put into all of her. But I, I just, I, like Mrs. Cross, she sounds so fed up in this quote. And I like, I love that voice. And then I, I don't, I feel like, I don't know. Should I spoil what's what going on with the wall or no? <laughs>
0: Um, how about this? Listeners, skip 30 seconds ahead if you don't want the spoiler. <laughs> there
1: you go.
2: So it turns out there is a window there, but the the shutters are paneled to match the wall.
1: Ah, so there's an yeah. illusion that
2: the wall just continues. And when I saw that type of shutter, I was like, oh, my gosh, like that is so freaky because it just, Yeah. Oh my gosh! You know what? I
0: absolutely—I think I saw—I've seen that shutter type of shutter before because I was watching this documentary about um, restoring an old manor, and they found a window that they didn't know had been a window because it had been basically paneled over, um, and all of a sudden, you know, from the outside, they kind of realized it was a window, but it literally looked like a wall, and it was openable like uh, to to get to the window it was crazy cool it was yeah they're, <laughs> they're and like more. I mean I don't
2: know if this was specifically but like the ones no. that I saw they like are like hinged so they like uh, you can like like they have a little track but when you fold them in they're like flat and they just look like you know if, if you have like a wood painted white paneled wall with those like where you know, like it's, like it's got the little, yeah, it just matches and it's seamless, but then yep. you can open it and it slides and it like kind of folds in like it accordions almost mm-hmm. and like yeah. slides into the, yeah.
0: Crazy. Yeah, I don't think it was the same, quite the same, but it was very similar in the fact that it was like so invisible that it was hidden, that it didn't, it just seems like it would have been only that someone had paneled over it, not that it was intentional, but then once you figure out how to open it, it's extremely intentional. Such a cool thing. That's
1: so cool. I wonder if that has anything to do with the window tax. <laughs> I don't think so, because I think from the outside, it would be pretty obvious. Yeah. Oh, but, no, but, I don't know. I can't remember exactly what the window tax was, but it was like some old families, like the house had been built and then they brought in this window tax and you were like taxed on how many windows. And so they would like board up (laughs) behind the window (laughs) in order to be like, oh, but it's not actually a window. And it was like a way to like not be taxed on how like on the facade because you could just go into the house. Did
2: they... And I like, then was it, was it not permanent when they did that though? Then they just like, "Um, I'm just curious. I'm just curious if that would be
1: the, like to make it look so seamless and to have panels that look so seamless. I wonder if it was just because then they could claim that it wasn't actually a window because it was like, because obviously people inherit these houses that already have the windows. They're not going to be like, Oh, well let's like brick them up. You know, it would ruin the facade. I don't know. I don't know enough about the window tax. I'm curious.
0: (laughs) I was gonna say I have a feeling that uh, in Rose's book, it's not about the window text. <laughs>
1: I don't think so either. This is just a random thought that popped into my head. No, no, that's really interesting. I um,
2: my first instinct is skepticism, but that is often my first instinct. I'm not always right. So, um, be, like my my thought is just that, like if it, I it would be pretty obvious if it was like very easy to.
1: Um, open it change.
2: I'm also the specific timing like those square windows I think came in after the window tax although I wouldn't I'm not sure at all but like they tend to go with like sash windows uh, like modern sash windows although not exclusively now I'm intrigued I'm going to see if I can find anything on this Um, everything matching was kind of just popular at the time. Yeah. The thing you see with the window tax frequently is that um, that they tax based on the thickness of the glass So even though they had the technology to make plate glass, you see a lot of like sash windows with like six panes or like the shop windows where it's like, Mm. and it's partially because you can, you know, you, you need, if it's going to be a really big sheet of glass, you need it to be much thicker. And so then it would be taxed at a higher rate.
1: Um. (laughs)
2: I bet that influenced style. Oh my gosh, it's so
0: interesting oh, sure and cool. It did. And there's,
1: there's so many layers. Well, it's just like the whole wig powder attacks finally got people to stop wearing wigs. Like <laughs> it definitely influenced fashion because people were like, well, let's get rid of these things because we're not paying more money.
2: <laughs> yeah. Or like this, the whole smuggling thing, like you, um, like actually like the, uh, the guy, the Mr. Rochester character in my book is very, uh, paranoid about smugglers, but There actually were not a ton of smugglers, and like like in that part of England at this time, because they were kind of uh, like it was. It wasn't totally eradicated, but because they were watching the coast for a French invasion, like it was a lot harder to smuggle there. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: At the really big, and also they had kind of stepped up the law enforcement. Like the really big smuggling was like in the earlier 18th century. But what eventually got rid of the smuggling was just lowering the tariffs. Like they did blockades of the coast. They did all this stuff and it just like didn't really work. And finally they just had to like lower the taxes and then it wasn't profitable anymore. No, wow, that's
1: amazing how that works. <laughs> People have never wanted to pay taxes. Go figure. I was just reading about
2: like this totally random rabbit hole. Uh, I found this, Family named the Page Turners, and I was like, "I if you knew the struggle to not name characters Page Turners in my book now, like it's so hard every book. I'm like, what if I just name somebody Page Turner? It's like, no, you can't do it. But um, my friend looked up Sir Gregory Page Turner's parliamentary record, and he mostly voted It was a um, ministerialist a Tory and he voted with Pitt but there were a couple of taxes where he voted against him one of them was the post horse tax which I found very intriguing <laughs> I still couldn't understand it after I looked at it I mean I could tell that there was some kind of tax on post horses and that this particular bill was to change how they contracted out the tax collection but how exactly the horses were taxed I still don't totally understand <laughs> but. There's a great line
0: in um, The Princess Bride, the book, where they talk about how, um, you know, I think it's stew is the oldest of everything. Like the first, you know, people crawled out of the earth and they had stew for dinner. And then later, um, Buttercup's parents are squabbling over taxes. And and then there's like a parenthetical that's just like taxes were here even before stew. <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> and, and I really, I really have always loved that taxes man <laughs> yeah I have a death and taxes joke in the book and I I all I couldn't like quite justify it temporarily because like Frank like that's a Benjamin Franklin joke and like he had said it but like he had said it in a private letter so it's like would people know about it maybe maybe not maybe the private letter I decided to go with it I decided <laughs> <Yeah. didn't care. laughs>
0: you know I, I again like you know Accuracy is cool and and fun and you get to learn about things, but also like we're escaping into a story. So I think like anything that makes the story more exciting or just memorable or anything, it's, I think then
2: it should be there. Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that. I will, I'm going to keep that dispensation in my back pocket. <laughs> um, I do like a lot of things in the book though. I do want to um, just because I, I have been, people have asked me um, really a lot of things in the book are based on true stories and true events. Um, as far as I know all of the history about, the English judicial system and whatnot is accurate. Um, If anybody has any specific questions, they should email me. Um, And I I am going to have some extras on my website, but I'm always happy to answer historical questions. If anyone is curious about any specific things in my books.
0: Yeah, we we spent uh or at least I spent a good amount of time, and I'm sure Kelsey did too. I just don't want to speak for you, Kelsey, um, on your website because there are so many amazing resources and stories and interesting things of, of that you found in your research, and and then on top of that, there's like so many extras for your books. Like I was looking at the True Pretenses one and all of the different little stories and things that go along with it. So yeah, it's um, it's a treasure trove.
2: I'll be honest, True Pretenses is kind of my favorite of my own books. Um, (laughs) Sorry to my other children. But um, but uh, so it definitely has the most extras, but I do have um, quite a few extras for everything, I think. Um, But that is definitely far and away the most because I, I love writing about them.
1: All right, Rose, we could easily talk to you forever. <laughs> your historical research is just like little teasers for my brain, because I have like a total just like jumpy brain. And you just say something and I'm like, but what about this? Rabbit holes. Rabbit <laughs> holes indeed. <laughs> but bringing it around, besides promoting your new book that's out, do you have anything else you're currently busy with that you want to share?
2: Um, uh, well, I do share if people like little historical tidbits and whatnot. I do share um, like a little um, I'm an update on what I'm working on or what's going on with me every week at my Patreon, which is, you know, Patreon. Um, I'm Rose Lerner. they uh L-E-R-N-E-R. Um, and I would say uh, the majority of it is like historical, is historical research stuff because that's who I am as a human being. So, um, and then uh, I'm work like for my next book, I'm currently working on the sequel to Wife in the Attic, which is about the uh, main character's best friend, uh, Iphigenia great name <laughs> i know i i did not know how to i mean i'm i think there are multiple ways to pronounce it i always said it, Iphigenia, in my head but uh all of my theater friends say that in theater circles it's pronounced Iphigenia. so i was like i'll just go with that um i'm sure there was some standard way that like rich british people pronounced it as like classic scholars and like i don't know what that i tried to figure out what that was and i failed <laughs> but um <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and then I'm also working on a uh, mystery, co-writing a mystery with uh, my friend Katie Welsh, which I'm very excited about because I've always wanted to write a mystery, but I definitely couldn't track all the clues and stuff. And uh <laughs> in charge of that. So
1: that's <laughs> <of> awesome. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. So you've already mentioned your Patreon, but where else can people find you on the interwebs?
2: So my website is roselearner.com. Again, R-O-S-E-L-E-R-N-E-R, and that's where all of like the extras and you can find out all about my other books and whatnot. I mostly for social media, I'm on Twitter, uh, Rose Lerner. Um, I do have Instagram and Facebook uh, and uh, maybe uh, something, I don't know, that are linked for my website. But I would say in terms of the amount of time that I'm actually there looking at it, it would Twitter is by far and away the most. And what about your
0: newest release, The Wife in the Attic? Where's the best place for people to find that right now?
2: So it is exclusive to Audible. It's, a, it's an <laughs> Audible original. So um, I have a smart link, which is uh, smarturl.it slash wife audible. Cool. That's um, great
0: and easy, and everybody should definitely go pick that up. You guys heard a little excerpt of it earlier, and if that didn't um, intrigue you, then I... I don't know what to do for you. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just teasing. But yeah, no, I'm really excited to to keep reading too. I'm, I'm not fully done with true pretenses. I'm sorry, but I have a baby. That's my excuse of everything nowadays. But um, I'm really enjoying and having so much fun. Um, and we'll be sure to link to all of the things that Rose mentioned in our show notes. And that was out on February 9th, which means that when you're hearing this episode, you can get it now, Mm -hmm. which is awesome because instant gratification. (laughs) But yeah, Rose, we were just so thrilled to have you and have this discussion with you. And thank you so much
2: for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is a blast.
1: Thank you so much. We've really enjoyed speaking with you and hope to speak with you again in the future.
0: Hey again, everybody. I just want to give a big thank you once more to Rose Lerner for joining us for all the awesome information that we got from her today. I really felt like we just dove into history. She has so much knowledge of the Regency period and other periods too. But if you are a history nut like we are uh, too, especially Kelsey, head on over to Rose's website and Take a look at all the materials that she has there. I'm not joking. It is so cool. There is so much you're going to lose time on her website, but it is a great place to learn about things from the period that we all love so much. So again, thank you, Rose. And we're going to be putting all the links that she mentioned into our show notes so that you can easily find them. And if you're looking for us around the web, you'll find us at T is in Tom and is in Nancy Strumpets on Twitter and on Instagram, Facebook slash TN Strumpets, and YouTube by searching our name. We have a link to our YouTube in the show notes. And if you're listening to this on YouTube, hi and thank you. If you don't mind hitting that thumbs up and subscribing while you're at it, we would so appreciate it. All right, as I said at the top of the show, we're going to be back again next week with a much beloved favorite. So drum roll, please. We are reading Devil in Winter by Lisa Kleypas. Woo! I'm so excited. Anyhow, <laughs> I just want to say thank you again all so much for listening. See you then, and may all your ever afters end happily. Tea and Strumpets is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.
1: Hi, my name is
0: Ellen. And I'm Ellen's mom. And together we host Not Your Mom's Romance Book Club, part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Our podcast is basically like having a book club with your gal pal and her mom who thinks she's part of the gang and won't leave you alone. Lame, whatever.
2: Kidding, to a degree. I got mom started reading romance and created a romance reading monster, but soon discovered that reading steamy scenes with my mother was
0: awkward, and I quickly discovered that I enjoyed making her feel awkward about it. And thus a podcast was born. We operate much like your local book club, adding listener insights to the book and reading books almost exclusively voted on by our listeners. We have laughed over Penny Read books, cried for an entire episode about an Amy Harmon book, and gotten super awkward discussing a J.R. Ward book. There is no limit to the books we will read, except for the really spicy ones that Ellen won't let me read. With reason. We post new episodes every Monday, and you can find us on social media at Not Your Mom's Rom. Find Not Your Mom's Romance Book Club wherever your favorite podcasts are sold for free. And happy romancing!